0: love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
1: Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker.
0: The setting is 2008. You're using your parents' old Windows XP. I think that's out at this time. I'm not really sure. But you pop in Crisis and you burn your house down because your family computer cannot run this game.
1: Nothing can. Yeah. I mean, XP could barely run aim, right? So definitely wasn't going <laughs> to run Crisis. But yeah, if you wanted to play this game, you may have been out of luck. Very difficult to uh, have the hardware required, but a fun game nonetheless. Absolutely. So
0: developed by Crytek, uh, and we see this engine in a couple other games like Far Cry, uh, Crisis really starts off this trend and this kind of like meme at the time of oh your pc is good can it run crisis oh your system's great can it run crisis and it became this meme of it and it really shows why cuz we we all asked why can we get better looking games why can't we get realistic stuff it's this type of stuff it's hardware limitations and when you have a game that tries to push those things to the max
1: you know for industry standards you see why we can't have the best of the best of the time. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be some type of boundary because while going for the best and trying to push the limits and all those things sound like great ideas, at the end of the day, you want people to buy your video game. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to make another one and mm-hmm. all of that effort is not going to be for you. It's going to be for other gaming companies that release their games, and they're going to be able to use all your hard work to basically profit off of because you were just ahead of the time. So you have to be able to, I think, recognize those boundaries and say, hey, we want to make this game as beautiful as we can, but we want it to be accessible. And Crisis was a great lesson for that. That's exactly it. So let's get on into it.
0: Crisis is a first person shooter video game developed by Crytek and published by Electronic Arts for Microsoft Windows and released in November of 2007. It is the first game in the Crisis series. A standalone expansion entitled Crisis Warhead was released in 2008 following similar events as Crisis, but from a different narrative perspective. At the time Crisis was released and years thereafter, it has been praised for its milestones in graphical design. However, demanding much for the computer systems at this time. The game is based in a future where a massive, ancient alien-built structure has been discovered buried inside a mountain in the fictional Lingshan Islands near the coast of the East Philippines. The single-player campaign has the player assume the role of U.S. Army Delta Force soldier, Jake Dunn, referred to in-game by his call sign Nomad. Nomad is armed with various futuristic weapons and equipment most notably, a nano suit, which was inspired by the real life military concept of Future Force Warrior. In Crisis, the player fights both North Korean and extraterrestrial enemies in various environments on and around the island. A remastered version of the game titled Crisis Remastered was released for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch in 2020, and also bundled
1: as part of the Crisis Remastered trilogy compilation. So Crysis, as we mentioned, was made by Crytek, which was founded by the Turkish-German brothers Savat, Avni, and Farouk Yerli in September 1999 in Coburg, Germany. One of their first projects was a tech demo of a game called Exile Dinosaur Island, which showcased their game engine technology that allowed for larger viewing distances than other game engines could do at that time. They met with NVIDIA during the 1999 E3, where their tech demo caught the attention of NVIDIA and various media groups. Crytek later signed on with NVIDIA to distribute X-Isle as benchmarking software for NVIDIA cards. Crytek's first major game project was N'Galus, a first-person shooter with a cyberpunk theme and role-playing elements, which was first privately shown at E3 2000. The project first attracted publicity for the company at the 2000 ECTS with their tech demo at the NVIDIA booth, but was subsequently cancelled. Crytek was approached by Ubisoft to develop Exile into a full AAA game, and this evolved into Far Cry, which was released in March of 2004. Alongside this, Crytek announced their licensable game engine, CryEngine, that was used for Exile and Far Cry. In February 2004, German police carried out a morning raid on Crytek offices, acting on an ex-intern's claim that Crytek was using software illegally. The police investigated for more software copies than licenses purchased, but no charges were pressed. That same month, Crytek and EA announced a strategic partnership to develop a new gaming franchise based on the Cry Engine, which would eventually be the Crysis series. Crytek opted in this direction to showcase that the Cry engine was not limited to just what Far Cry had shown. Due to this partnership, Ubisoft acquired the full rights to the Far Cry franchise by 2006, as well as a perpetual license to the first Cry engine, which they have since adapted into their own Dunia engine. In December of 2004, Crytek and ATI created a special cinematic machinima to demonstrate the future of PC gaming. In January 2006, Crytek announced the development of Crysis, promising that it would
0: be an original first-person shooter with a new kind of gameplay challenge requiring adaptive tactics. The game later won several Best PC Game Awards from E3 and Games Convention. In April 2006, Crytek moved to new offices in Frankfurt. The first public demonstration of Crytek's CryEngine 2 was in January 2007, one year after Crysis was announced. It has been licensed by many companies such as Avatar Reality, WeMade Entertainment, Entropia Universe, XL Games, and Reloaded Studios. On May 11, 2006, Crytek announced that their satellite studio in Kiev, Ukraine had been upgraded to a full development studio, giving the company its second development studio. About a week after the upgrade of the Kiev studio, Crytek announced a new studio in Budapest, Hungary. And as we know, Crisis was released in November 2007 with the expansion 2008. And in October of 2011, Crisis was released on some consoles, allowing play of the original game via Xbox Live and PlayStation Network in kind of a digital release to
1: try these systems out. So, yeah, only took four years to get it, you know, basically get all the technology available on console to be able to play a little Crisis. To, to, to kind of run it. It did run-ish. <laughs> yeah. Not, not with the intention, but, you know, console in general is mm-hmm. sort of is just there to be the greatest common denominator. For sure. So let's talk about the actual game development and, of course, the game engine. Crisis uses Microsoft's Direct3D API for graphics rendering and includes the same editor that was used by Crytek to create the game. The game runs on a new engine, which is CryEngine 2, and it's the successor to Far Cry's CryEngine. CryEngine 2 was among the first engines to use the Direct3D 10 framework of Windows Vista, but was designed primarily to run using DirectX 9, both on Vista and Windows XP. Roy Taylor, Vice President of Content Relations at NVIDIA at the time, had spoken on the subject of the engine's complexity. Stating that Crisis has over a million lines of code, equivalent to nearly 3000 pages. It had 1 gigabyte of texture data and 85,000 shaders. Crisis is often used as a benchmark in computer tests. As Crisis at the highest settings and resolutions required processing power from computers that was unfeasible when it was first released. In its time, the game was so demanding on previous computer hardware that the catchphrase, but can it run Crisis?" was frequently used in relation to new or powerful computer hardware, even over a decade after the release of Crisis. So yeah, a little meme. A little meme born out of Crisis. Yeah, and, and it
0: does relate, and it really answers those questions for people who want to be like, why are the graphics not living up to what I want? Why aren't we getting these like, hyper-realistic things. It's like the hardware's got to catch up with the software. Like you can develop these things that can process faster. That's where you're going to have it. And so, yeah, I mean, 10 years down the line where we're still trying to get a lot of this new tech, especially in the console market, to live up to what piece... Because PC hardware versus the cost of what a console was at the time is skyrocketing above what you can afford with a console versus like what, like I'm gonna spend two grand on my PC, that's not feasible for a, con- for a console market. And so, yeah, that meme lives for a long while because on those highest settings, like it did just straight up melt computers because it could not run it and it would just burn out chips, it was wild. Now we do have the demo for Crisis and Crytek and kind of figuring out how this is gonna work. So, on August 27th, 2007, Crytek announced a single-player demo would be released on September 25th. However, it was pushed back to October 26th. The demo featured the entire first level, Contact, as well as the Sandbox editor. On October 26th, Crytek announced that the demo would be postponed for at least one more day and was released the day after. However, on many sites, it was provided a day early and an oversight allowed people to grab the file directly off an EA server earlier than intended. Shortly after the demo's release, some enthusiasts found that, by manipulating the configuration files, most of the very high graphics settings, normally reserved for DX10, could be activated under DX9. The very high DX9 graphics mode looks almost identical to the DX10, with certain graphical features not being able to be reproduced correctly, such as object motion blur. So allowing people to kind of tap in and, on that older file, be able to access some of those things that, rightfully so, were intended for the later release on Vista on
1: these what should be higher-end PCs. And it's interesting, too, because you have to wonder if that was intentionally you know, left behind where they wanted to make sure that only the best of the best were going to be able to see those high-end graphics. Because if they find this workaround to make it work, you know, in a a basically a lower end setting Mm -hmm. that they weren't intending, it sort of defeats the purpose of what they set out to achieve, right? But it's always fascinating to me how people are able to dive into this code And a lot of times unlock things that maybe even the developers didn't think of necessarily, or like I said, it's very possible that they were aware that it was there, but just for whatever reason, weren't able to program that functionality into the game under normal circumstances, whether it be because they couldn't or because they were told not to.
0: Sure. And and there's definitely plenty of those oversights that just happen of just kind of that leave behind thing, like not figuring someone would tap into the config files to be like, wait, if I just change this, it works over here. And it's like, oh, man, well,
1: sure, go ahead. Why not? Well, yeah. And I mean, a fresh set of eyes, right? You've got people that have been working on this game for years and years and... They see things in a certain way, and that's just how it is. And then you get someone totally fresh, sees it for the first time, and finds something really simple. I mean, exactly. You know, just having that fresh perspective can lead to a lot of very, very cool things, I think, in video games and a lot of aspects of life. Yeah, 100%. So, Crisis contains a level editor called Sandbox, much like Far Cry's, in which new levels can be created and edited. Such levels will have full support in all multiplayer modes. And this allowed for the player to easily build their own levels, seeing everything in real time within the editor. The player could also jump into the map they were working on at any time to test it, and the editor is the same one that was used by Crytek to create the game. If you have not gone to like the OG Far Cry or even OG Crisis stuff
0: and used the level editors, they were so ahead of the time to be able to drop a map, play around with it. I remember doing this in Far Cry a lot, and then just drop in. Very much like, like in Halo, we have forge mode. Uh, this was kind of that very early on mode for it where you could, as you're doing it, drop in, put guns around or whatever, test stuff out. And yeah, it makes so much sense to like have this level editor for yourself building the game and be like, hey guys, if you want to build more stuff, boom, here you go.
1: Yeah, I think sandbox elements around this time were really, really popular. And hey, Mm -hmm. I mean, if that tool is available and you can just program it into the game and it's not going to like break anything, it's not going to ruin any of the gameplay experience, then why not? I mean, they obviously built something so simplistic, you know, to design their own levels. I think it's interesting to be able to get that glimpse just as a player. And sort of see what the developers were seeing. I don't know that that really gets done in the same way in a lot of sandbox editors where there's more limitations and things. So, for them to have this more transparent version of that is really cool. So, there was also a limited or collector's edition of Crisis just called the Special Edition. And the three disc Crisis Special Edition contained a steelbook casing, which was unfortunately not available for North America. There was a Crisis game DVD. There was bonus content on the DVD, including Making of Crisis. You had a Meet the Developers featurette. You had the initial Crisis concept video. There were trailers, a showreel of original concept and production artwork, screenshots, storyboards, the game manual, a 16-page art booklet was included as well. And then there was an exclusive in-game multiplayer amphibious APC vehicle, and then a official soundtrack CD by composer Anon Zor. They don't really do stuff like this anymore in games, but I really miss this era, you know, where it was a little bit more like starting a business in the garage, where I feel like you got so much of this behind-the-scenes stuff. Just a guy, you know, at a desk with a ton of soda cans everywhere like <laughs> on operating on a still like white pasty full CRT monitor you know making making these old games just doing the grind so to get that in the special edition see behind the scenes is really cool well that's that's the whole thing is i think and i think everyone took it for granted because there was a lot of games for collector's edition
0: that did have a you know BTS DVD and some extended things but especially as a kid you're just like anyway cool Throw that away. Let's continue playing this thing. But, like, now, especially doing this podcast, it's so cool to see just like how these things were created and just concept art, the ideas behind stuff. And it's like, we tried those things, they didn't work. We did this. Here we go. And we're seeing it more and more now for movies, especially like seeing like the special effects and the BTS of how that kind of went about. And I do miss that kind of just like cameraman
1: in the studio filming as these games are created. Yeah, it's a very corporate type of development cycle now for a lot of games. Um, But it's these smaller teams that I find really fascinating and and even larger teams where the companies, though, are just a little bit more homegrown still before they get Mm -hmm. bought up by these bigger companies and brought into the fold and, hey, now you're doing things this way. Being able to sort of get that glimpse into the past is fascinating. Absolutely. And of course, I don't want to forget this. The South African release included an EA Crisis t-shirt. So a little bit of extra marketing for you there. A little bonus pack. The South Africans got that t-shirt. Exclusive. I like it
0: uh now i I want to break down the gameplay a little bit it's it is very similar to a lot of your fps's but having that kind of like futuristic aspect nano suit stuff i want to talk a bit more so as with crytek's previous game far cry crisis is an fps with many ways to meet objectives the player controls a special forces soldiers codenamed nomad the player's weapons can be customized without pausing the flow of time for example, changing firing modes, changing scopes, or adding sound suppressors. The player is also capable of selecting various modes in Nomad's military nanosuit, which draw power from the suit's energy. When the suit's energy is depleted, no modes can be used, and the player is more vulnerable to damage before the suit recharges. One of four modes can be selected. We have armor deflects damage and recharges the suit's energy faster, strength allows stronger hand-to-hand combat, the ability to throw objects and enemies with deadly force, higher jumps, steadier aiming, and reduced weapon recoil. Speed increases running and swimming speed, as well as other forms of motion, such as reloading weapons, and cloak, which renders Nomad almost completely invisible and suppresses movement noise.
1: The suit's integral face mask has its own HUD, displaying typical data, including a tactical map, health, current energy levels, and weapons information. The view is electronic in nature, shown in-game through things such as booting, readout, and visual distortion during abnormal operation. A particularly useful utility is the binocular function, which allows the player to zoom in and electronically tag enemies and vehicles from afar, thereby tracking their movement on the tactical display. The player can engage enemies in a variety of ways, using stealth or aggression, bullets or non lethal tranquilizers, ranged rifles or short range weaponry, and so on. Enemy soldiers employ tactical maneuvers and work as squads. All soldiers will respond to noise caused by the player, including using signal flares to call for reinforcements. If the player has not been detected in the area, Enemies will exhibit relaxed behavior, but if aware of the player, they will draw weapons and become combative. And with most FPSs, we need to dive into
0: the weapons. What are you going to go pew-pewing? <laughs> the game features assault rifles, submachine guns, pistols, missile launchers, shotguns, miniguns, sniper rifles, Goss rifles or the coil guns, the MOAC, a machine gun style alien weapon which fires high velocity ice shards, and the TAC gun, a handheld nuclear grenade launcher. Most weapons can be modified with attachments, and these attachments may be given to the player by default, acquired from picked up weapons, or purchased in multiplayer. Attachment options are given a fair amount of leeway, even if the end result may seem strange. For instance, a 4X-10X sniper scope can be attached to the buckshot firing shotgun though there may not be any practical use for such a particular combination additionally most weapons have multiple firing modes single or automatic fire and different ammo types for example the kpa's fy 71 can fire both conventional bullets as well as incendiary bullets which increase damage crisis also incorporates some features that have appeared in other recent shooters at the time such as accounting for already chambered rounds when reloading occurs. So if you have like a 12 round mag, you drop it, slap another one in, it says 13 because you have one in the chamber still if you haven't fired everything, which was newer tech for that time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you could tell that there's just a different level of detail that goes into a game like that when they're thinking about that aspect and thinking about putting the scope on weapons that don't really need it things like that options for you just to have more fun really as a video game player but have absolutely no practical use as alex said
0: yeah i i think that's fantastic and and we don't see that like in you know even the most modern of modern call of duties you're kind of restricted to what those weapons that you can pick from you can unlock like the acog scope for this thing mm-hmm. or a laser yeah, yeah any of that stuff whereas this is like hey You want to really see the pores of your enemy while you put a shotgun to him? Be my (laughs) guest.
1: (laughs) A large selection of vehicles are present, most of which are usable by the player. Available ground vehicles range from pickup trucks to tanks, while naval vessels range from motorboats to light military hovercraft. A larger patrol boat is available in custom-made multiplayer maps using the sandbox editor. All vehicles, including Humvees, pickup trucks, even tanks, have a turbo mode that can be activated via the shift key by default. The aircraft selection is limited to the North Korean attack helicopter and a fictional American VTOL. Crytek also included an amphibious armored personnel carrier, its wheeled version that can travel on water and land, although this vehicle was only available for those who pre-ordered the game. Damage modeling, although limited in vehicles, is most noticeable in the ability to burst tires, although wheeled vehicles can still move even if all the tires are gone, slowly rolling along on the rims. Tracked vehicles such as tanks or APCs can lose their tracks as a result of damage, but may continue moving even though there is no way for the drive sprockets to propel the vehicle. Exposed gas cans on Humvees can be shot in order to detonate their contents, which usually results in the explosion of the vehicle. While burning, destroyed vehicles will cause proximity heat damage to objects and characters. Unavailable vehicles shown in game include jet aircraft, excavator, forklift, and, for reasons of scale, destroyers. None of the alien machines can be commandeered by players. The anti-Halo, if you will. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The wheeled carts, which would presumably be used to move aircraft or heavy vehicles, can also be moved by the player, but movement is very slow and useful for little more than entertainment and novelty.
0: And what more is there in a video game, Derek, but entertainment and novelty? Why
1: can I not (laughs) drive the forklift? It's true. It was always a little disappointing when you wanted to go and interact with something, and it's just there for show. Let me drive the forklift. I'm gonna Austin Powers this, baby. Let... (laughs) Yes, let me drive it. That's
0: all I'm asking. I'm just asking for a little bit of fun. But speaking of fun and segues, let's talk about the story a bit.
1: If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down.
0: After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. when North Korean forces led by General Ri Chan-kyong take control of the Lingshan Islands. A team of American civilian archaeologists led by Dr. Rosenthal send out a distress call indicating that they have discovered something that could change the world. A week later, United States Army Delta Force's Raptor team is dispatched to the islands with the core mission of evacuating them and securing any valuable information that they have. The team consists of Nomad, Psycho, Aztec, Jester, and Team Leader Prophet, all under their codenames of course, and they are outfitted with technologically advanced nanosuits, which help protect them from gunfire and explosions, as well as giving them superhuman strength and abilities. As they perform a high-altitude jump onto one of the islands, an unknown flying entity disrupts the jump by smashing into Nomad, and the team is separated. The crash deactivates Nomad's nanosuit and destroys his parachute, but he is saved because he lands on water and his suit absorbs the impact of the landing. After he makes his way to shore, Prophet is able to reset Nomad's suit remotely, restoring its normal function. As the Raptor team regroups after the jump, Aztec is killed by an unknown entity. When the team finds him, They discovered that whatever killed him also killed and dismembered a nearby squad of KPA soldiers. The remaining members of Raptor team proceed with the mission. Along the way, they discover the hostage's boat, frozen, on a hill near the coast of the island. They also get their first look at the aliens who have been attacking their team when a flying alien machine sneaks up on them and snatches Jester, killing him shortly thereafter the first hostage the team rescues turns out to be a CIA agent who is sent to monitor Dr. Rosenthal's work. In the jungle, Nomad finds another hostage named Badowski dead, with ice shards in his back as the KPA battle an alien machine nearby. After Nomad regroups with Prophet, Prophet is suddenly snatched by another flying machine, which flies away with him in its grasp. Shortly after, Nomad is contacted over the radio by Major Clarence Strickland of the American military, asking if he wishes to abort the mission since most of his team has been killed or missing.
1: Nomad refuses, saying that he can still complete the mission. I need a weapon. (laughs) Nomad makes his way to Dr. Rosenthal's research complex, where he has found a rare fossilized artifact predating humanity by two million years. The partially excavated artifact resembles one of the flying machines, designated exosuits, that has been attacking the team. Rosenthal also references other discoveries of similar artifacts in Afghanistan and Siberia, suggesting that the aliens have a global presence and are not just confined to the island. While Rosenthal is running a scan on the artifact, it emits a powerful energy pulse that freezes him solid. Nomad's nanosuit is able to maintain his internal temperature, saving his life. Nomad then rendezvous with a VTOL after eliminating a nanosuit-equipped four-man KPA Special Forces team near the landing site. He notifies his superiors about this because the U.S. military had hoped to prevent the Koreans from acquiring nanosuit technology. The U.S. military then begins a full-scale invasion of the island, led by Major Strickland. As the U.S. forces continue to the main excavation site, the central mountain on the island begins to fall apart, revealing a huge alien structure inside, which is nearly the size of the mountain itself. Nomad enters the excavation site at the mountain's base, but is captured by Kyung's men. Kyung deactivates Nomad's nanosuit and Nomad watches, helpless, as Kyung shoots one of the hostages in the head and then detonates explosive charges to open the structure. An energy pulse emanates from the structure and kills Kyung's men. The pulse also reactivates Nomad's nanosuit. Keong, also wearing a nanosuit, attacks Nomad, but Nomad is able to kill him. As the mountain continues to collapse, a VTOL evacuates the last hostage, Dr. Rosenthal's daughter, Helena, but is unable to rescue
0: Nomad. Nomad gets trapped and decides to continue into the alien structure. It soon turns into a zero gravity environment. Nomad uses his hydrothrusters to maneuver and encounters hostile, intelligent aliens. He also sees a possible invasion force consisting of many alien machines. Nomad manages to escape, but the structure creates a massive sphere of energy that freezes everything inside a structure to negative 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 129 degrees Celsius. Once outside, Nomad is attacked by various alien machines before finding profit. Prophet was able to engineer a weapon using the alien's technology, the molecular accelerator, the MOAC. Prophet's nanosuit malfunctions, requiring him to frequently stop and recharge using heat sources, such as the burning wrecks of military vehicles. The two leave the ice sphere and rescue Helena, whose VTOL has crashed. Prophet leaves with Helena on another VTOL. At the U.S. evacuation point, one of the last VTOLs rescues Nomad from an unstoppable quadrupedal alien exosuit. Just as the exosuit is about to destroy the VTOL, Major Strickland draws its attention by firing at it using a mounted machine gun, and the exosuit kills Strickland instead. As they leave the island, the pilot is killed, and the engines are damaged. Nomad flies the crippled VTOL back to the USS Constitution, the carrier strike group, while fighting off aliens along the way. Once there, he meets up with Psycho, and is then debriefed by Admiral Richard Morrison, who explains that a nuclear strike has been ordered against the Ice Sphere. Helena warns him that the aliens might absorb the energy, but the Admiral ignores her. Prophet flies a VTOL back to the island against orders. Despite Prophet's departure, the nuclear missile is launched at the Ice Sphere. The explosion causes the Ice Sphere to expand and prompts a massive alien counterattack.
1: Nomad is ordered to repair one of the carrier's damaged nuclear reactors. The nanosuit is resistant to high levels of radiation, although prolonged exposure proves deadly. While Nomad is in the reactor room, Helena sends an experimental signal through Nomad's suit that causes several alien machines to absorb too much power and overload, destroying them. As Nomad returns to the carrier's flight deck, Admiral Morrison is killed, and Nomad takes the prototype TAC cannon. On the flight deck, Nomad fights an alien exosuit similar to the one that killed Strickland. A massive alien warship then emerges from the sea, and Helena manages to deactivate its shields by sending a signal through Nomad's nanosuit. Nomad then uses the TAC cannon to destroy the alien warship, which crashes down onto the carrier and begins to sink it. Nomad runs across the flight deck and jumps off the carrier into the waiting VTOL, which is piloted by Psycho. As they fly away, Helena is nearly pulled out of the aircraft by the energy field created by the destroyed alien warship. The ship drags the Constitution beneath the surface and vaporizes, creating a massive vortex that engulfs and destroys the entire carrier fleet. Psycho then receives a transmission that there is another carrier strike group en route to the island and suggests meeting them. Nomad protests, claiming that since they now know how to defeat the aliens, they need to continue fighting. A transmission from Prophet, who is inside the energy field on the island, is then received. The VTOL is then seen turning around and heading back to the island. Dun dun dun. Sequel. We're not <laughs> done.
0: <laughs> so it, it's it's a pretty good story, I would say overall. I do like the idea of kind of this. It's it's Halo esque in like, hey, we're using this technology that we discovered, but really it's kind of like this alien tech that kind of got leaked into our brains somehow that we discovered that we made those nano suits and. It's definitely a cool story, and and it definitely obviously sets it up for a sequel.
1: Yeah, gotta finish the fight. Gotta finish it.
0: So, with multiplayer, up to 32 players are supported in each multiplayer match in Crisis, which uses the GameSpy network and requires the user to have an existing user ID or otherwise create a new one. There are two different modes, each with six available maps. Instant Action, a Deathmatch-type mode and Power Struggle, which is played by two opposing teams, each trying to destroy the other's headquarters. Power Struggle features the American soldiers fighting the North Koreans. Both sides, however, have nanosuits. All players begin armed with only a pistol and a nanosuit. Weapons and vehicles can be found throughout the map, but generally must be bought by using prestige points, which are earned by killing enemies or capturing buildings. The aim of Power Struggle is to destroy the enemy headquarters, a task which is achieved using nuclear weapons in the form of attack tank, attack launcher, or using a singularity tank, which generates a temporary black hole in the target area. To gain access to nuclear singularity weapons, the player must first capture the prototype facility, which is used to make them, and then use the alien crash sites which feed the facility with energy necessary to build up enough energy to build weapons
1: of mass destruction. One must earn prestige points, attained by killing enemies and taking over bunkers, power stations, and factories to buy weapons and vehicles, including any of the aforementioned super weapons. Some of the weapons available in the game are machine guns, pistols, a shotgun, a precision rifle, ammo, a rocket launcher, explosives, and a gauss rifle, which is a sniper-type weapon able to kill another player in one shot. The advanced weapons available for purchase from the prototype factory, aside from nuclear and singularity weapons, require 50% energy. Weapons the player can buy are the handheld minigun, the MOAC, which has infinite ammo and fires ice shards, and the MOAR, which is an upgrade that can be attached to the MOAC, causing it to fire a beam that will instantly freeze all enemies and some vehicles. Capture the Flag, originally planned to be included in the game, is not part of the game mode lineup, due to its similarity to Power Struggle. Even so, Jack Mamias, lead designer, stated that Crytek hopes that this mode will be developed by the modding community. Crytek CEO Savat Yurli also said that Team Action would not be included as a multiplayer mode because players would gravitate towards either Instant Action or Power Struggle. On April 14th, 2014, Crytek announced that the multiplayer mode would be unplayable after GameSpy switched off its servers on May 30th, 2014. So it had a good run. Oh. If you could play it from the beginning. Yeah. Had a good run. Which maybe you probably couldn't. But... <laughs> yeah,
0: if, you, if you're able to try and play it and you're like, ooh, you know what? May 31st,
1: 2014 is when my PC is going to be full built up. Can't wait for some <laughs> multiplayer. And no. <laughs> I finally built a machine that could run Crisis. Why have you done this to me, GameSpy? <laughs> Very unfortunate. But, you know, that is
0: heyday. And then obviously we get some more of that when we get the, the trilogy remastered release coming out in 2020 on various consoles, be able to play it through there. Now, speaking of release versions, we had Crisis Warhead, and so Crisis was announced to be the first game in a trilogy by Crytek. Despite this, the next game released under the Crisis name was not the second chapter in the trilogy. Released for Microsoft Windows on September 16, 2008, in North America and September 19, 2008 in Europe, Crisis Warhead is a standalone expansion that allows the player to play the story told in the original Crisis. But this time from the viewpoint of Sergeant Michael Sykes, also known as Psycho. The multiplayer element in Crisis Warhead is now called Crisis Wars. And we had those console versions. In July 2011, it was revealed that both the ESRB and the equivalent Korean ratings board had rated the original Crisis for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. On September 8th, same year, a trailer with real-time in-game footage was released on Crytek's Twitter page. It showed brand new features for consoles, including all-new lighting, new effects, and new nanosuit controls, fine-tuned combat, and full stereoscopic 3D support. This version is download-only. Crytek CEO Savat Yearly said, quote, We are extremely proud of what we were able to accomplish with Crisis. We set out to create a next-gen FPS, And delivered a pc experience that became a benchmark for quality and still is for many gamers even four years later by bringing the single player campaign to console we believe we are again setting a new standard for quality in downloadable gaming however unlike the original the xbox 360 and ps3 versions of the game lack the online multiplayer component as well as the second to last campaign mission titled ascension also Neither Warhead nor Wars expansions are included, and this was released on
1: October 4th, 2011. And of course, as Alex said, we had Crisis Remastered, which was announced on April 16th, 2020, and it was titled Crisis Remastered, and was to be released for Xbox One, PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and PC, featuring new graphical assets, effects, and software-based ray tracing. The remaster was originally intended for a simultaneous release on all those consoles, and a trailer was scheduled for release on July 1st, 2020. However, in the days previous to the trailer's release, the trailer itself and several screenshots were leaked and were poorly received by the public for failing to provide any marked improvement over the original game. For this reason, come July 1st, Crytek announced that except for the Switch, they would be postponing the release of Crisis Remastered for all platforms by a few weeks to improve its visual quality in an attempt to meet the user's expectations. The Switch version was announced on July 10th as coming out on July 23rd. And on July 22nd, a tech analysis published by Digital Foundry based on the Switch version revealed that Remastered is not based on the original PC version of Crisis, but off the port. From the playstation 3 and xbox 360 versions on august 21st 2020 a new tech trailer was released for remastered showcasing improved lighting 8k textures ray traced effects and setting the release date for september 18th 2020 given the remaster was based on the ps3 and xbox 360 version of the game the remaster lacked the ascension level that was similarly missing from the console versions This level was added back to the game in the 2.0 update to it, which was released on December 17th, 2020. There was also a second chapter announced on May 30th, 2009, which continued where the first game ended. It was released on March 22nd, 2011, called Crisis 2, and was developed for the Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360. In addition to seeking a United States trademark for the name Crisis, Crytek sought to trademark the name Crisis Wars, World in Crisis, and Crisis Warhead. On April 16, 2012, EA and Crytek officially announced that Crisis 3 was in development, and the game was released in February of 2013. At the time of its release, Crisis was one of the most demanding games available in terms of hardware requirements. And this caused the phrase, as we have said, can it run Crisis? Which was a question of whether personal computer systems with the best possible hardware could run the game at its maximum quality and resolution settings. The phrase was applied jokingly to non-gaming computers such as NASA mainframes or historical computing hardware such as the ENIAC. Later Crisis games, which being available on consoles, had to ensure performance on these platforms dropped some of the most demanding rendering features of the game engine, thus making the Can It Run Crisis question moot. Honoring this aspect of the original game, the highest detail level in the PC version of Crisis Remastered is called Can It Run Crisis? So, coming full swing, then leaning into the meme, I do
0: like that. <laughs> the very much, like, can it... Unfortunately... We do know that even on the remastered version on PC, it is based on the console version. So, of course, it can. My 360 and PS3 could. Why can't my $8,000 PC do it? (laughs) (laughs) So, love that they leaned into it. Love that it kind of came full swing with that remastered. Obviously, we're not seeing any more multiplayer from it, just bringing more of that campaign aspects of it for that remaster coming from the console aspect of it. But still, would love to see some more of it. Mm -hmm. Now, upon its release, Crisis was met with critical acclaim. Metacritic rated the PC version 91 out of 100, the Xbox 360 version 81, and the PS3 version 81 as well. The game was awarded a 98% in the PC Gamer US Holiday 2007 issue, making it one of the highest rated games ever in PC Gamer, tying with Half-Life 2 and Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri. GameSpot awarded Crisis a score of 9.5 out of 10, describing as "quote." Easily one of the greatest shooters ever made. GameSpy gave it a 4.5 out of 5, stating that the suit powers were fun, but also criticizing the multiplayer portion of the game for not having a team deathmatch as everyone wanted, but they're like, meh, we're not doing it. (laughs) Xplay gave it a 3 out of 5 on its Holiday Buyer's Guide, special episode, praising the graphics and physics, but criticized the steep hardware requirements, as well as stating that the game is overhyped with average gameplay. Ooh. According to the Sim Exchange, the NPD Group reported that Crisis moved 86,633 retail units in the first two weeks of its release in North America, but while it beat their expectations, the sales were considered disappointing overall. Two months later, on EA's earnings conference of the quarter, it was reported that Crisis had reached the 1 million units mark and that it had exceeded their expectations. It received a silver sales award from the Entertainment and Leisure Softwares Publication Association, the ELSPA, indicating sales of at least 100,000
1: copies in the UK. On the other hand, Savat Gurley stated during an interview with PC Play in April 2008 that he was disappointed to see the game leading the charts in piracy, and because of that, his studio would not produce any more PC exclusives as he believed a game such as Crisis would sell four to five times more copies if it was released on consoles. Die Welt likewise reported that piracy had left the game with disappointing sales by April. Piracy figures released by Torrent Freak indicate that Crisis was indeed one of the most pirated PC games of the year. In June 2008, Savant stated that while their hopes had not been met, The game had reached their real expectations, and in August, he added that despite its $22 million budget, the game had turned profitable for them. By May 2010, the game had sold over 3 million units, and its standalone expansion, about 1.5 million units, making it one of the best-selling PC games of all time. Now, Derek, let me pause you there, because it's frustrating. I get the frustration
0: of pirated games. Like, that sucks. Well... For the publishers.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes.
0: Um, for the pirates, a lot of booty. Booty on, as some might say. Um, but for it to be one of the best-selling PC games of all time and for them to be like, we're never making PC exclusives into it, like, doing okay on console. Like, this kind of that thing of like, this could have kept being a benchmark. And this is just my opinion entering this. This could have kept being that benchmark game. Can it run Crisis 2? Can it run Crisis 3? Like, you could have kept really putting it out there and for them to be like, well, it didn't do as good as I wanted it to do. And then destroys
1: these benchmarks and everything else. And it's like, well, it did
0: come on, man. Come on.
1: Yeah. No, that's definitely a good point because you have that meme basically circulating. You could totally run on that. That's a lot of free marketing for you um, to make it unavailable for the platform that started that meme. Uh, yeah, I agree. I understand the frustration, but there was probably some potential there that's now unrealized. Yep. GameSpot awarded Crisis Best Shooter in its Best of 2007 awards, saying that, quote, It was this open-ended, emergent gameplay, the ability to let us tackle our challenges in whatever way we wished. They also awarded it with Best Graphics, Technical, and Best PC Game, stating that, The firefights in the game are beautiful to look at, but extremely intense affairs that force you to think quickly and reward you for doing so. It's a dynamic game, one that you can play several times to discover new things and to experiment with different approaches. PC Gamer awarded Crisis its Game of the Year and Action Game of the Year in its March 2008 Games of the Year awards issue. PC Gamer also remarked that Crisis has pushed PC gaming to a new plateau. Marrying the most advanced graphics engine ever created with phenomenal gameplay. From the cinematic opening to credits to its cliffhanger ending, Crisis is mesmerizing. Game Reactor gave Crisis a perfect 10 and awarded it with its Best Action Game of 2007 award, saying that the action genre is forever changed. IGN awarded Crisis its Editor's Choice award saying that the Halo 2-type ending wasn't enough to deter me from heartily recommending action fans pick this one up. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those
0: games that, at the time, it was very frustrating to run it on Macs, obviously, because that's what you want to try and do with your PC stuff, but it was. I mean, it was groundbreaking. It forced others, I think we said this earlier, I think you had said this, to adapt and like you said, if this had bombed, it's giving this kind of leeway or this pathway for others to be like, yeah, we need to push the graphical fidelity. We can we can do it, but also have a good game under it. And for it to be like an FPS, which is typically not this one that we see as story heavy, graphics heavy per se at the time, it was just more like, can I see the enemy? Does it explode when I shoot it? Cool. Like those were the those were the true benchmarks of the time sure. to pushing it and pushing the boundaries of it.
1: Sure. and. It's a, it's a good marketing ploy as well, right? To push the envelope, to really establish yourself as we are the game that looks good. If you want to mm-hmm. play the good-looking first-person shooter, this is the one that you need to be playing. And of course, yeah. that's a big draw for a lot of people. It's games like this that I think made people more interested in PC gaming as a whole, because obviously we've seen that sort of make its way back into the realm of popularity to the point to where all the parts have skyrocketed in price over recent years, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. compared to then. But it is, it's games like crisis that are the reason for that, because without games that are pushing the envelope graphically, if you can get the same experience on a console, then of course you're going to go with the the cheaper option, right? They push the limits. Obviously you could see the downsides of going too far. Making sure that you have the boundaries, but a really interesting topic, and I, I think a really interesting conversation to be had. Um, that sort of ties into what we've talked about in the past, and and what makes a game, and and what really the priorities should be in terms of is it the gameplay, is it the graphics, is it the story itself? You know, there's all these different things that go into it, but you see once again that having one thing. Be the driving factor um, and excelling at that can lead to a successful game and, and even a successful franchise: I think that's absolutely right. I, I think that's exactly it is, is yes, it, it is a market gimmicky
0: at a point, but for them to develop this Crytek engine and first try that you know in that exile and then bring it over to Far Cry and then eventually bring it into this futuristic aspect of Far Cry in a way, it really. Set the tone. I mean, you know, we're not seeing crisis releases, unfortunately. Now we just had our trilogy, and that was kind of it. Into the remasters, but we are seeing Far Cry. We're still seeing Far Cry coming out. We're seeing yep. that kind of choose not choose your own adventure, but like, how do you tackle this base? How do you go? Are you loud and proud with it? Are you quiet? Do you kind of take them out one by one? Do you release some animals into it? Like, there's so many different aspects that Crisis keeps adding to. or Excuse me, uh, Far Cry keeps adding to their their lineup. Uh, it's it's a shame that we don't see more of this cyber uh, crisis stuff coming out of the same studio.
1: So Derek, you let me know why you like this game, but what would you rate it? So for me, um, availability is definitely important um, <laughs> and wasn't made available to uh, people like me for a while. But, you know, when it finally is available, a fun game, I think a lot of the stuff that they did for crisis is cool like these sort of superhuman elements but these are also things that i while i couldn't directly control them necessarily in the way that i couldn't in crisis in other games i still had mm-hmm. certain elements of that the invisibility you know playing that in in halo 2 you could go invisible you could do things like that you were sort of a super soldier in that regard as well with the suit. So it wasn't all really that fresh to me. Now I will say the actual gameplay of itself, um, very different, very cool. Uh, Love the ability to just run up to someone and just like choke, throw them uh, across mm-hmm. a beach. Super cool. So on that note, for me, it's like a seven out of 10. It's not a game that I'm going to rave about and be like, Oh, you've never played crisis. You have to play crisis. I think that, all the things it did for the time are really great. But some of those other things that really limited the availability kind of hurt it for me. What about you?
0: I think that's a lot of it. I, I, I'm i not... For me, it was never a game. I don't have those rose-tinted glasses for it. I really didn't play it till later on PC. Um, I also didn't really have a PC at the time. I was a wee baby child in... Were you in grade school at the time? Yeah. Um, so I didn't really play it through there. So I played it later. It's a cool game. It's a good FPS. Um, In more of a historical sense, I rate it higher there. Um, As far as a game to play now, I have not played the remastered. I'm not sure if that's living up to the hype of OG stuff or if they work with that, but I know the other two did pretty well as well. So, I mean, if I had to rate it, it would probably be the aspect of I would use... A nano suit, not for war, but for daily life, um, mostly for carrying groceries into my house. Because like I try and do that one trip, as most people do, because that's really all you want to do. But what I could do with a nano suit is I could buy more groceries mm-hmm. um, and various heavier items too at the same time, and then carry them in my house all in one trip and use like a nano a nano spoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that'll be what I call it. It's my nano to a get nano-spoot. around. My nano spoot. Um, to like close the trunk at the same time,
1: like it would be well worth it out of ten. Interesting. So you would use this highly advanced technology to make your grocery shopping experience easier. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Okay. It's the one thing in life that's lacking, I would say. That's a, that's an interesting <laughs> takeaway. You know, they make little like clips. You can just like put a bunch of bags, and then it's just one handle. You got Yeah, yeah. All yeah but what if I
0: want? What if like? Old what if I'm having a watermelon season? party? No, no. What if I'm like a watermelon party, and I buy like for thirteen watermelons. Like, well, that's more than one trip. I don't think the crisis
1: suit allows you to balance watermelons.
0: No, 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 no. Get like Ikea bags, put it in there. So I can carry them all at the same time. No mm. harm, no foul, no
1: issue. That's that's going to be my tagline.
0: That's my Marvel tagline.
1: <laughs> I'm looking forward to your watermelon <laughs> party because I've never heard of this, so should be fascinating. Well, we, well here's the thing. I would have one if I had a suit. Unfortunately, no uh, watermelon party to come. Okay. So
0: it's unfortunate. Sorry, everybody.
1: In the year twenty seventy-seven, if the nano suit technology has made its way to the general public, really yep. looking forward to that watermelon party. Absolutely. You'll I be assume <laughs> we'll be able to live forever if that technology's out. So Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't want the cryo suit to help me live forever. I just want it to carry watermelons. <laughs> Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music was recorded, written, given to us by our friend Evan Barr, and our lovely artwork was provided by Aaron Shattuck.
0: As always, some beautiful people there and some beautiful people supporting us online. Thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to support us a little further, with a little monetary benefit for you and I. We're talking about our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight. I want to thank a select few members today with Duststorm, Snide T-Bird, Nick Hyman, Lee Tom John, and Keller Kane. Thank you all so much for the support. As always, you can check out some really cool, exclusive digital and physical content, uh, as well as our Minecraft server and our D&D adventure online over at Patreon.
1: You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on Discord. It's free to join. There should be a link below in the episode. We'd love to see you there. We're talking... Food, video games, TV, movies, got some streamers, some Twitch guys, people that do things, whatever you want. Listen, who doesn't love some people who do things? <laughs> as always, talking
0: about Twitch guys, you can catch me <laughs> at Twitch.tv/sourman70. That's Twitch.tv/sourman70, as well as Derek at Twitch.tv/thebakerman247. That is Twitch. TV slash the Baker two
1: four seven. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, please drop us a review. It helps us out a lot, and we love to hear from you.
0: And with that, this has been our coverage of Crytek's Crisis. What other games, especially historically significant, would you like us to check out? Um, we'll go ahead and add that to our list and get that research a And Thank you all so much. As
1: always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, uh, Crisis Nomad Guy. (laughs) And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.